Okay, so uh, if if my studies in university taught me one thing, it's that the the people at the top of our society are first and foremost uh, highly intelligent. Mm -hmm. Okay, people tend to, to to get sort of fixated on uh, you know dumb dumbs like Donald Trump or <laughs> Justin Trudeau, right? Yeah, and they they think they okay, this is your establishment. These guys are are figureheads, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're puppets of the establishment, in my opinion. Uh, the real sort of uh, the people who write the legislation, people who are advising behind the scenes. These people are the smartest of the smart. Right? Yeah. Uh, so they, they are brilliant. Uh, and a lot of them I went to university with. So I know these people aren't stupid. And these people, I would also say, are the ultimate multitasker. Hello, and welcome to Dystopian Deep Dives with your host, Natalie Donna. Today, I'm speaking with Jen Smith, who has a lot of experience dealing with uh, cancel culture and uh, sort of the genesis of uh, transgender debate. Uh, he's been there and has a lot of very interesting insight into this. So without further ado, here's our episode. Hello, Jen Smith. Thanks for joining me. It's good to be on your show. I noticed, you know, the, the word transgender kind of sort of evolve. When did you start noticing it? Um, and the emergence of it as we know it now? Well, first of all, I would say, it's, uh, in my opinion, it is a lifestyle. So um, mm -hmm. we can just sort of start with that. Um, second of all, um, as, as far as the term transgender, I didn't really notice it uh, coming into the vernacular in, until probably the new millennium. Mm. Um, maybe, maybe towards, uh, you know, sometime in the 1990s, but, um, certainly it wasn't a term that, that I started using until I would say after 2000. Oh, wow. Okay. So what made you interested in this topic? Uh, you've been very vocal, a vocal critic of what a lot of people call trans rights activism. Uh, what, why do you, why are you interested in this topic? How long have you been interested in it? Well, I mean, because I've lived the lifestyle right. <laughs> for for such a for such a, a long time, I have. Well, I mean, I didn't I didn't really see this as sort of a political thing. Mm -hmm. So in my life, it's been more of a again a, a lifestyle. It's been a way of sort of uh, um, interacting. Uh, with the world and expressing myself in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, that was sort of the, the long and the short of it. Uh, the politics, uh, quite frankly, came as a bit of a surprise to me. I mean, like I knew that there were uh, some linkages there with uh, the LGB community, but I was unaware of just how powerful the T had become and uh, just how aggressive they had become uh, politically uh, until – um, I would say 2015 when they were uh, putting through Bill C-16 here in Canada, uh, and that was sort of brought to my attention. Um, and people, uh, initially I would say people kind of got the wrong impression about uh, Bill C-16 and maybe perceived it to be a little more draconian than it was. I mean, it's got sort of bad aspects to it, but uh, the, uh, for instance, the suggestion that it was going to force everybody to um, – you know, uh, speak the chosen pronouns of another person uh, has turned out to be completely, you know, uh, there's no. I mean, how do you even that. enforce such a thing? 
Right. So, I mean, a lot of people were saying that initially, but when I first had my attention turned to it, I was listening to people like Jordan Peterson and some mm-hmm. other people out there who were saying, well, this is it. This is the end of free speech. We're going to be forced to speak uh, uh, these, uh, uh, you know, fake pronouns and all that. Um, but I was more sort of concerned when I began looking at what was happening in terms of women's rights, that the first mm-hmm. thing that got my attention was the whole women's rights thing and, and the fact that they were saying that um, males such as myself who express in the world in feminine ways were now essentially demanding to be given all the rights uh, of females in terms of uh, accessing uh, private spaces and uh, you know if they're sent to prison be, being sent to a women's prison instead of a men's prison and when I looked at all of this um, I thought that was outrageous because like I've uh, always sort of I guess you'd say I'm kind of unusual in the trans community in the sense that I've never detached from my sense of uh, my biological reality. So again, back to this idea that it was a form of expression, right? Um, so when I saw sort of what I regarded as kind of the craziness that was going on out there and the sort of the trampling of reality that was going mm-hmm. on, and then furthermore saw what they were doing in our schools, I became like seriously alarmed and um, sort of detected that there was some, appeared to be to me some sort of um, overreaching establishment agenda pushing this. And I felt that um, because of my identity and because when I looked in Canada, I didn't see at that time anyway, any other uh, transgender voices meaningfully countering what was going on, with the exception of maybe somebody like Theron Meyer, who I regarded ultimately as a bit of a weakling. Um, But (laughs) with that exception, um, I didn't see anyone else sort of uh, meaningfully countering what was being uh, said and promoted. So I felt that I had to enter this debate. And I also felt I had an extra obligation to do so because I have a bu- uh, background in um, uh, political science. And part of my studies in university was um, the history and the evolution of propaganda and mass, uh, basically different types of mass mind manipulations right. uh, engaged in by, by government. So that immediately caught my attention because I saw mm-hmm. propaganda everywhere. And I thought, okay, this is something I have to involve myself in. So while we're on that, that's a great segue. Uh, why do you think a lot of mainstream media, if not all, you know, sort of uh, government or what we would, you know, I guess the, I think it's a false dichotomy, but the left, the liberals so-called uh, are in lockstep with uh, what we know as transgenderism. Like how would it benefit uh, the government and industry? You know, obviously it benefits the medical industry, but out Outside of the obvious uh, profit motive, what what do you think is motivating this? Why do you think they're all in lockstep with these uh, with this ideology? Okay, so uh, if if my studies in university taught me one thing, it's that the the people at the top of our society are first and foremost. Uh, highly intelligent. Okay? Mm-hmm. People tend to, to to get sort of fixated on, uh, you know, dumb dumbs like Donald Trump or <laughs> Justin Trudeau, right? Yeah. And they they think they okay, this is your establishment. These guys are are figureheads, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're puppets of the establishment, in my opinion. Uh, the real sort of uh, the people who write the legislation, the people who are advising behind the scenes. These people are the smartest of the smart. Yeah. Right? Uh, so they they are brilliant, uh, and um, a lot of them I went to university with, so I. Know know these people aren't stupid. And these people, I would also say, are the ultimate multitaskers. So people frequently have, have asked me, okay, so what do you think this is all about? As if there's like one answer. Right. I think there's probably... <laughs> 
multiple things going on here, right? Mm-hmm. The most obvious one, I think, is you've already sort of hinted at, and that's medical, but I would be mm-hmm. a little more uh, specific than that. I would uh, talk about the uh, medical pharmaceutical complex, right. okay, because they stand to make billions of dollars. Yeah, for sure. You create a permanent patient. Right. And so just on that aspect of it, okay, that's just one thing, but just on that aspect of it, it is worth noting that uh, when I entered this debate in uh, 2015, 2016, when I first started doing uh, public talks, um, initially my public talks were all uh, in churches because I was interested in trying to awaken the Christian community because there's so much uh, like the, there's so many uh, people there, like the numbers, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. also they are known for sort of putting their money where their mouths uh, are, right? In terms of uh, if they uh, believe something needs to be done, they will get behind it in that way. And I saw this sort of latent force out there that was largely inactive when I began speaking uh, about this. Um, so I wanted to sort of alert them to the problem and get them motivated. So I spent maybe the first year of my public talks uh, speaking almost exclusively in churches. Uh, but towards the tail end of that, I had some disagreements with people in the Christian community, including Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, who I used to to, to do public talks with. Mm-hmm. So I sort of broke off from my uh, Christian focus. I Like I didn't sever myself from the Christian community entirely. I still have connections there. Um, but I wanted to sort of reach out to the um, like to the general community, you know, because I felt this is something everybody should be aware of and be concerned about. So what I did at that point is, whereas previously I had been doing joint talks, like I say, with Laurel and Tyler Thompson, with mm-hmm. other people, I was always sort of part of a, a two or three person bill. Um, but I decided I wanted to go solo. And at that point, I decided that I needed to rework my presentation. Okay. And in my presentation, um, Previously, I had not focused on certain things. So I had talked about Big Pharma, kind of the way somebody like Megan Murphy talks about uh, Big Pharma. She'll mention it, but kind of fleetingly, right? Right. Uh, She doesn't really get into the details of it. And I kept sort of, uh, during the course of my talks, when I'd mentioned that, people would say, ah, that's just a conspiracy theory, right? So I sort of decided, okay, so I need to actually bring a lot of facts and data to the table. So I had to sort of shoot down this conspiracy theory argument that's out there. So I reworked my presentation uh, to have a large section that dealt specifically with conflicts of interest uh, between the scientists in, uh, who are doing the, the transgender research, we'll put that in quotes, and the pharmaceutical <laughs> yeah. industry. Okay, mm-hmm. So I did a very, what I thought was a very sort of um, effective uh, expose on conflicts of interest involving big pharma and transgender science. Now, mm-hmm. whereas previously, when I was just speaking in churches and I was not talking much about pharmaceutical industry at all, I got very limited pushback, very limited uh, protests. There were some protests out some, outside some of the churches, but nothing really significant, right? But once I did, went out on my own and I did this heavy focus on big pharma, that's when the whole establishment came down on me. Okay, That's yeah. when basically the government... Um, um, uh, the uh, like the LGBTQ groups and everybody sort of came down on me and tried to sort of squash me out of existence. And I started getting these huge mobs of protesters outside my talks and stuff, mm. uh, including hundreds and hundreds at the, the one talk in uh, Victoria. So the, the thing is, is that 
I think that should be instructive to people. Okay, so I got very little attention from the establishment until I started talking about corruption uh, in conflicts of interest involving big pharma. That's when the eye of Sauron, if you will, <laughs> you know, cast its gaze upon me. So that's right. a big thing. Yeah. Now, the, the other thing that's maybe worth uh, mentioning here, and like I say, there's probably a whole bunch of things, because I think um, and uh, certain people in academia have recently talked about uh, the fact that this COVID-19 uh, should be used as um, an impetus towards what they call a global reset. Right. So I, I believe that there has been a, a movement in elite circles for some time to recraft humanity. Yeah, I think it's been really amped up in the last five years. I think, right. yeah, what you're, we see the emergence of a lot of different sorts of things, transgenderism just being one of them, which I feel like we weren't really even discussing topics like this 10 years ago. Um, oh, maybe in the halls of ac academia, for sure. You know, this was a very niche sort of topic, I feel. And now, you know, it's exploded, and I, I don't think that's a, um, a coincidence. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, no, no, no way. I mean, the, when you look at sort of the establishment push there and the fact that government, um, uh, science, uh, academia, uh, Hollywood all began sort of pushing this mm -hmm. aggressively at the same time, that's not an accident. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there, there is an agenda driving this. And whereas I can talk about big pharma, and that's a big thing. Money, money speaks, and that is a big thing. But you can't uh, for – you know, just for the purposes of the pharmaceutical, you can't get everybody behind you like that, right? There's got to be something else going on. Um, and um, I believe that it's part of this global um, reset that so many people are beginning to perceive is going on because the, uh, like, I don't know about yourself, but uh, back when I was in university, even already at that time, sort of elite intellectuals had basically decided that humanity was a kind of virus on the planet, right? right? And that we are uh, destroying the planet and uh, that we need to sort of uh, move towards changing that. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Um, but that's going to require um, more totalitarian <laughs> forms of government. Okay? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, so there's this part of that going on. But there's actually an interesting thing because um, when I was doing my um, – talks uh when i first started doing my my talks as like just me um i did a talk in i think it was in campbell river in, in bc and there was an aboriginal leader there who was connected to the united nations and stuff and he listened to my talk and uh, uh my focus on big pharma and stuff and and afterwards he came up to me and said yes uh, i found your talk very very good and i totally agree with what you're saying about um the pharmaceutical complex um but you do really realize that a big part of this is population control mm. don't you right so yeah. so it's sort of a form of eugenics um so so at that time like i was like okay i don't know if this is population control because i thought that was going a little too far off into the conspiracy fringes right mm. but the more i've looked at this right and the more i've paid attention to this and the more that we look at the the fact that uh, for instance the combination of uh, puberty blockers and synthetic hormones uh, right. uh, sterilizes so many of these youths i just wanted to mention lupron is also like a pretty nightmarish drug for other sections of the population that have taken oh, it yes. specifically oh, yes. women so 
it's not a good i don't think a very good drug <laughs> well any any drug that basically shuts down you know large portions of the endocrine gland system mm -hmm. uh, you know <laughs> you want to sort of avoid uh, doing that i would suggest but um so not only like um is it sterilizing so many of these kids but you, you have to look at like the demographics of who it is that's being uh, sterilized and when you begin looking at who is being sterilized that's when that word you used earlier comes into play mm. eugenics mm -hmm. because so many of the youths who are identifying as transgender are kids who are on the autism spectrum kids with psychological and emotional problems and if you look at um, say some of the protests have taken place outside of my public talks and you look at the crowds of, mm. the, of the people pro protesting me, so many of them, and I don't say this to be mean, but so many of these young transgender uh, youths and stuff are what you would call social uh, outcasts, like in misfits and stuff, right? Mm. And I say I'm not trying to be mean there because I was one of those kids when I was young, right? And um, so they tend to be the ones who are being caught up in this uh, uh, net. And again, eugenics, I mean, if you want to sort of decrease the population and uh, reduce uh, you know, the birth rate and stuff, um, the people at the top are going to want to target that as much as they can because they've always had this sort of eugenics tendency in them in terms of you know trying to improve the uh, quality of the gene pool if you will right right so um, i think that's probably part of it um uh, the, the bigger part i would say would be this global reset but then you start getting to all kinds of sort of nuances uh, that uh, i don't know <laughs> that we would have time to get into but uh, something that you mentioned to me uh, previously is maybe worth exploring and that's the role that language is playing in all of this yeah that's the first thing that i noticed uh, i studied uh, poetry uh, myself and so when this sort of language was emerging, um, which I would think, which I saw rather in an online sphere, you know, I saw this sort of strange language emerging where people were talking a lot about gender and they were talking about what they were identifying as. And um, I always thought that was interesting because either you are something or you, you know, you're not, I think. And you can't really identify yourself out of uh, your sex. Um, you can totally ex uh, express yourself, and I think you're right, you know, in a sense where, uh, because I was also, I would say, really nerdy and kind of gothy, and, you know, we were just listening to music. It was more of a scene, a lifestyle. That's why I called it a lifestyle, because, you know, you're, you're expressing yourself through fashion or whatever. Um, and so I don't remember speaking about any of this, you know, when, when we were doing that kind of stuff, music scenes or whatever, uh, you just like Peter Murphy or something, you know, but, uh, <laughs> so the language was really a compelling issue for me because they were just speaking a language I didn't recognize, even though it was English and it, it's very Orwellian in its nature. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, this, and all of the sloganeering, trans women or women, without any sort of uh, room for nuance, it was all very strange to me. And I sort of wrote it off for a while, like, oh, this is just an internet phenomena. You know, this isn't going to catch on. And here we are about, I'd say, five years later. <laughs> and, yeah, I, um, I think there are a lot of really strange things going on. It's just amped up. 
to well, a million. Yeah, so what I would say is that, uh, and I've been sort of focused on language and the use of language in this debate for quite some time, mm. and I think it is key. Language is a powerful control uh, tool. Mm -hmm. So you just said Orwellian. So George Orwell uh, once uh, wrote that um, uh, if you can control language, if you can get uh, significant control over language and the use of language, you can... Um, move society in a direction so as that it becomes um you know impossible for people for instance to describe their own oppression okay mm -hmm. so it, it um i mean there's more to it than that but uh that statement i think um the best illustration i have of what i mean when i when, when i say that or when george orwell wrote about that was in a, a radio interview that i did uh with a, a radio station in ontario and um, we were talking about uh, Jessica Yanov, right, uh, who is this uh, transgender identified person uh, who is a born male who identifies as uh, female. And uh, I was talking about uh, or trying to explain to the, the, the radio host why what Jessica Yanov was doing in terms of dragging all of these women into court and uh, because they weren't, uh, you know, treating him as a woman and why it was such a, an outrage. And I was describing this stuff uh, and I said, uh, let's see if I can remember the exact sentence. It was something to the effect of um, Yanev is, has forced these women to treat, to, to um, shave his uh, genitals Right. Uh, and treat and, and force these women to treat uh, him as if uh, he is a female. And, but in, in that sentence there, the, the radio host sort of stopped me and says, OK, no, no, no. I want you to be clear here that I recognize Jessica Yanov as a woman. So I recognize him as a as a she and her. So, uh, you know, she kind of wanted me to use those pronouns. But uh, I said, OK, well, that's 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 part of the problem here, because if we go back and rework that sentence. Right. And I say, OK, so Yanov forced these women to you know, perform waxing around not his, but her genitals and treat her as a woman. Okay, I, what you've done there by forcing me to do that is uh, removed all the outrage. Okay, so mm. you just sort of removed the ability to describe the outrage that is going on there. So um, if she and her uh, no longer refer to exclusively to females, then what pronouns do? So the transgender activists frequently will say that people are trying to strip them of their identity. I would say, no, 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 it's the exact opposite because we have just seen it there, that it is women who are being stripped of their identity uh, through the through the uh, vector of language, if you will. Right. It's always a reversal or an inverse of, you know, uh, what's actually happening. I find that their yeah. rhetoric and, and it's none of it's original either. They just co-opt whatever rhetoric uh, whatever other movement sounds good. And, you know, yeah. just with the recent protests, you see them sort of wedging their themselves and their beliefs into, you know, like, you know, trans Black Lives Matter, you know, like they can't uh, seem to make it not about them for, for just a moment, you know, and I, I guess there's just a, a level of narcissism there. Um, but I don't want to, I want, I want to be careful when I say things like that, you know, I, I don't, want to diagnose anybody 
Um, obviously, I'm not a therapist or anything like that. Um, but I think this well, culture sort of it encourages narcissism uh, with things like social media, and you're always sort of putting on a show. Um, and, you know, part of the departure of reality, I think, you know, has been manufactured by social media as well, like the Internet. Well, I would say that, that, that we have to be careful. OK, so mm -hmm. because I'm somebody who identifies as transgender um, mm -hmm. and I've sort of adopted that word because I think it's actually the best word uh, that sort of describes what's happening, because gender is is all about presentation and expectations in mind and stuff. Right. Right. And so what I do is I frequently sort of take on. Uh, roles and forms of dress and stuff typically associated with the opposite sex but mm. are not the sex uh, in and of itself right? right so transgender is a fine word with me um, so I like to be careful too and uh, one of the things that I would say about the transgender activists is that we need to be careful not to confuse the body of the transgender um, community if you will with the loudmouths who right. are representing it yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of really vocal, loud people on the internet, and then there's everybody else. Well, Morgane, Morgane Auger is a perfect example of sort of one of these outrageous figures who mm -hmm. is out there sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, appointed himself as the official spokesman, at least uh, locally here. But... Um, Yes, there are a lot of narcissists there, but again, this is an, uh, uh, in my opinion, this is an establishment agenda. And if there yeah. is an establishment agenda, and if you come to the conclusion in yourself that you think that this is an establishment agenda as well, and that's an important one, you must understand that the establishment is going to have operatives right. working. Right, exactly. To, yeah, yeah, to do that. So there are people out there who are sort of pushing this and who I would say are working with the establishment. And then there is the easily led masses of the transgender community. Mm. And um, most of them, I would say, um, and, and I talk about this in my public talks, and I take a lot of flack for this, but it's true, that there are high levels of uh, mental illness in the transgender community. Mm. And I've said that, you know, I myself have suffered from, from this in my own life. So again, it's not something where I'm trying to demonize any. Anybody. Right. It's just a, a fact. I mean, one study uh, indicated, I think it was 52% of uh, the transgender people that they looked at had uh, one or more uh, DSM listed conditions in addition to gender dysphoria. So mental illness is a big issue out there, but these people are also easy to uh, manipulate and they've been brainwashed. So a, a good example of that is um, some people have, like, I've got a like a mini documentary on my YouTube channel uh, called Six Months of Madness that sort of followed me through six months of my public talks last year mm. uh, and uh, filmed a lot of these crowds who were there protesting me. And there's this one scene in this documentary uh, inside Oak Bay, which was just a, like a, an insane asylum full of uh, crazy protesters. But there was this one girl. And she was sitting at the very front of the room, and she was just a yelling at me, just yelling and screaming that I was a bigot and uh, I was endangering uh, transgender people. And she was listing off all of these statistics about transgender suicide and all this other stuff. And uh, that was why uh, she had to protest me, and that was why I was evil. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is that almost everything she was saying was wrong. But it was quite clear that she believed all of it. Right. She believed every single right. word that she was saying. OK, so she has been um, 
you know, she's a victim of disinformation and brainwashing and has bought into it. And I would say the bulk of those protesters falls right into that category. So what we are dealing with essentially, in my opinion, is like a cult. This may be right. like the biggest sort of cult movement in human history. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a decentralized cult. Like cults typically right. have Yeah, have I've a, often have leaders, thought that. Right? So this is a, basically a cult movement. And... Um, it, like many, uh, like when dealing with cults throughout history, the only sort of solution to that has always been sort of separating the cult members from the leadership. That's going to be a big challenge, but in some ways that's kind of the challenge that we have, uh, mm. that uh, so many of these youths uh, have to be deprogrammed, right? And that's been a big part of my sort of journey is I try my best to sort of speak through all of the madness and to try to reach out to some of these uh, confused transgender people and say, listen, you've, you've been you know, sold a false bill of goods, okay? You're being led down uh, a bad road and uh, you know, here's some an alternative view for you. Here's an alternative way of looking at things. Um, but it's, you know, it's a very, very difficult uh, thing to do uh, once somebody has sort of uh, subscribed uh, to that type of uh, uh, reality-denying um, philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we often sort of uh, describe it as a cult. And uh, if you're familiar with any sort of like, I guess, Stephen Hassan's sort of bite model or, you know, if you sort of know the cult uh, sort of mentality, it's pretty easy to recognize in others. So once you mentioned someone powerful you knew was interested in recruiting you, is this part of some sort of government psyop to create a divisive issue? Because obviously it's torn a lot of uh, communities apart, I think. Right. Okay. So this is that whole global reset thing. Mm -hmm. So before I sort of address that particular individual, um, what I would say is that if you're going to try to reshape the world, right, and move it in sort of a a direction, uh, you know, more conducive to the goals of what we'll call the global elite, you're going to need more government power. Okay. So, but how do you get uh, particularly people in free societies to agree to grant the governments, you know, more and more power. Mm. Um, the best way to do that is the way that um, the United States, for instance, has done that for a very long time, for decades and decades and decades, all across the world, in uh, Central America, in South America, in Asia, and certain parts of Europe. And this is a strategy of basically um, divide mm-hmm. um Create, uh, you know, to basically destabilize, put everybody at each other's throats mm-hmm. and cause chaos and uh, civil war to break out. Uh, Any time that you've seen this in history, going even right back to, say, uh, Germany, post-World War I Germany or in Italy, is that when you get this kind of chaos breaking out in society, people start begging and pleading for somebody strong to come mm-hmm. in and restore order. Right. Okay. Um, and that's where you get people pleading for more and more government power. So the United States has done this before all around the world. I believe they're doing that, not just the United States, but I'd say almost every Western government uh, around the world seems to be on the same page. And it looks like instead of doing this in what used to be called third world countries, they're now doing it here. Um, mm-hmm. So that's my belief on that. Now, as far as this uh, particular individual that that I knew, um, 
people should maybe understand that I used to do okay, what I'll call sex work, and I know some people get offended by that term, yeah. say it's prostitution or, or whatever, um, whatever you want to call it. So I used to do transgender sex work, and I had sort of a, an elite uh, clientele. Yeah. And um, one of the uh, uh, clients that I had was a very sort of wealthy, connected man here in British Columbia. And... Um, he became, I would say, over time, because I saw him multiple times, um, kind of sort of smitten with me and developed sort of uh, almost, uh, uh, you might call it a fatherly type <laughs> concern for my well-being. Mm. And um, at one point, he basically said to me that um, I'm involved, okay, and he predicated by saying, okay, now I need you to understand that um, – you know, this is this is strictly between you and me. I'll tell you why I, I'm talking about it now, though. But he sort of predicated it by saying, you know, this is just sort of a, a private thing that I don't want you talking to anybody about. And he said, I am involved uh, in a project that has to do with information. And he also knew my educational background, that I had sort of basically specialized in um, propaganda and, okay. uh, you know, mass uh, mind manipulation strategies by governments and stuff. So he knew that about me. So he said, I'm involved in a project, in an information project in British Columbia that um, is related to transgender issues. He said, I can't tell you all of the details of this project, but I think that you would be the perfect person to help with this project. And yeah. if you would be interested in that, it could change your situation. Because he knew that I was, you know, I was doing sex work and I didn't really right. have two, two nickels to rub together, right? So he was uh, presenting this to me as an opportunity to better my situation financially. So he said basically that uh, this would solve my financial problems. So right there that tells you that this is uh, – uh, a well-funded project, whatever it was, right? Okay. So he said, however, it's not my decision to make, okay? I just want to know whether or not you'd be interested in doing this. And if you're interested, then I will take it to the people that I'm working with and we'll go from there. Um, one of the interesting things that he said in that conversation, though, and the, the discussion I had with him was actually uh, in two forms, in person and by text. And I've got some of the text messages actually still to this day. Um, but in, in one of the text messages uh, that he sent me, he says, what I need you to understand about this project is that it is essentially spiritual in nature. And he spelt spiritual in all uppercase letters, right? Hmm. And that actually, that word kind of sort of startled me because I sort of regarded this guy as an atheist hedonist, right? And so for him to be, like he was probably the last person I would expect to use the word spiritual. And yet there it was, not only was he using it, he was putting it in you know, block uh, uh, capital letters, right? And I was like, okay, spiritual. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, what on earth could he be talking about? But Anyway, he sort of, he went off and I didn't uh, hear from him for, well, I don't know how long it was, maybe a couple of weeks or so. And eventually, um, when I talked to him again, uh, he said, okay, so here's, here's the deal with that project that I was uh, telling you about. Um, it's been decided that you're not appropriate for this project. And uh, what I need you to do right now is just um, don't ever mention this to me again at all, ever, period. I don't mm -hmm. want to hear another word about it ever. It's a dead subject. Done. 
Right. And that was that was the last I heard of it. Now that is sort of like um, the long and the short. So it was some sort of project, some sort of information project in the province that was well funded, that was designed to change people's perceptions uh, or uh, manipulate people's perceptions on issues related to transgender identity Mm. um now you know what you can sort of get out of that i don't know some people have said to me well maybe he he was just pulling your leg and he was pretending he was involved in something this guy wasn't the type of guy to pretend and if i like the one thing i swore to this guy i didn't agree like he told me that you know he wanted to keep it private but i never agreed to keep that conversation private Mm. what i did agree to with him a long time ago was that i would never reveal his identity right because because he is uh, a connected person and um what i would say about him is that if 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 i were to tell you what he did for a living your jaw would probably fall open (laughs) so so um he wasn't the type of guy to to you know do that type of thing, right? He was a deadly serious, um, a highly successful person who, is, who just was not prone to that sort of thing and had no reason to do that. Right. So, so if he was such a serious person, why do you think he would frame it that way, would say it's spiritual? You know, I have a lot of people talk to me, and sometimes Christians as well. Some of them do believe it is a spiritual battle. And I mean, are you a religious person? Personally, I'm, I would say, an agnostic person who, you know, might have a connection to spirituality but doesn't necessarily call myself one thing or another. Yeah, so um, this probably maybe, maybe it plays a role in why he used that particular word because um, I think over the period of time he came to realize that I am not religious, but I... Um, well, I say I believe in God, but it's more than that with me. I actually mm. usually say that I know that there's a God, and I'm not going to get into sort of defending that. <laughs> That's fine. Right now. Yeah, right. it's too but, long of a conversation. I, yeah, I am a firm believer in a God, but I have I subscribe to no religions whatsoever. Okay. Um, and I think that he was sort of aware of that with with me. Now, whether that sort of fueled his um, use of that word, I don't think so. Um, like, I can only speculate as to why he used that word, but mm. it was quite clear. Again, like I say, my impressions of him was that he was an atheist. Mm-hmm. and a hedonist. Right. So why he would put so much emphasis on that particular word, I don't know. <laughs> I believe that if you want to look at it from a spiritual perspective, I believe, I don't know if you ever watched the TV series Lost, but in, in Lost there was something called the Dharma Project. I believe that we are seeing basically a real-life version of the Dharma Project, which is this restructuring of the world in a hierarchical way, Mm. uh, a top-down sort of totalitarian way uh, that might sort of in Eastern circles be understood as, you know, a political manifestation of Dharma. Right. Mm. And uh, there are people out there who believe that these hierarchical structures of power are – if not naturally, at least naturally ordained, perhaps supernaturally ordained mm. as sort of the right way uh, to see the world. But you can do what you like with that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I don't, I feel like this is sort of off topic, but you mentioned it often, and I guess we'll just close out with like a short discussion on this topic. 
but you you often mention sort of uh, how pedophilia and sort of transgenderism are kind of interrelated. If I'm getting that wrong, please correct me. Um, and why do you think I I notice a lot in this culture that I, I see these kinds of things being normalized, pedophilia as well as you know I mean transgenderism, and why so why do you think that is? What is the connection there if there is one? Um, and we'll just close it out there. Well, this is a subject that I've uh, discussed at some length with mm -hmm. various uh, parties, including a discussion I had with John uh, Euler recently, who used to work uh, with the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania State Corrections, uh, um, basically as a psychologist uh, counseling um, pedophiles and right. sexual predators. Um, and he's got a little sort of uh, different perspective. Uh, he kind of feels that... Um, the sexualization of, of children is a central part of the transgender agenda. Mm. Um, I would, I, my impression is not that. What I think is that the sexual, the sexualization of children has been going on for a long time. Exactly. Sort of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Before the transgender thing come came along, but I do believe that um, there is a push towards sexualizing children now. Um, that's sort of stronger than it has been previously, and it is attaching itself to the transgender agenda, mm. but it's doing so, and I would say it is doing so in a way that you might not sort of expect. So it's easy for people to look at, say, uh, transgender kids like uh, Lactatia or Desmond is Amazing, some of these sort of drag kids who are, you know, being overtly sexualized and dancing in gay bars and stuff like that. It's easy to sort of focus on these, you know, what the psychology would call vivid examples, right? Mm. But I think the real threat is is much more stealth. So the, the real threat is, um, like I sort of became sort of focused on this aspect of it myself only when people such as Ken Zucker and James Cantor right. and, and some of these people that I call the Toronto Cabal became involved. So these people came in basically, as I would say, as wolves in sheep's clothing. They came in as our friends saying, okay, we're opposed to child transitioning as well, and we're here as experts to help you fight all of this transgender craziness. But if you look at these, these leading voices, whether you're talking about Ray Blanchard or Ken Zucker or James Cantor or Deborah So or any of these people who have uh, sort of been thrust uh, to the forefront as experts opposing the transgender agenda, almost to a person, they also subscribe to this harmless pedophile narrative mm -hmm. and this born, born that way pedophile narrative. Right. So, so I think what is happening and, and people, uh, when James Cantor, for instance, came in and James Cantor is a sexologist at the, uh, university of Toronto, uh, who's, who's an, uh, an expert on, um, uh, pedophiles, I guess. I guess he'd say he's an expert on pedophiles. He does MRI studies on, on, on pedophiles and the brands and stuff like that. Mm. But uh, prior to getting involved in the transgender thing, he was sort of regarded as a regarded as a loathsome figure because mm. he was saying, um, you know, pedophiles are born that way and we need to be nicer to pedophiles and all of this type of stuff. But he was uh, sort of widely despised for that. But when he came into the transgender thing. Uh, a lot of people right away said, oh, he's an expert. He's a University of Toronto. He's an expert. He's speaking, uh, uh, you know, in our defense, and he's, he's willing to work with us to fight against this, uh, this uh, craziness, right? And so, so many people welcomed him. But when I took a close look, because that's what I do with anybody who shows up on the landscape. I take a close <laughs> look at who they are. Check them right? out. 
Yeah. And what their background is. Yeah. And when I realized who this person was, I said, wait, wait a second here. <laughs> Hold it just a second. Mm. This is a harmless pedophile guy. We don't need somebody like this attaching themselves uh, as yeah. our experts and taking up the leadership. Uh, the danger that I saw there was that um, I felt that he was going to come in and very weakly defend our position. And I'm not going to unpack that, but he's doing a very mm. weak sort of support for our positions. But during that process, he is going to position himself in terms of prestige capital. He's going to position himself as a defender of children. And when he gets done, whatever he's doing with us, he's going to take all of that prestige capital he's taken and that image as a defender of children. And he's going to take that off to his other main agenda, which is destigmatizing pedophilia. Wow. Right. And, and that's all of these guys. So he's connected to all, like all of these people that I, that I mentioned already, like whether it's Blanchard or Zucker or right. Deborah So, yep. they're all connected to, to the University of Toronto and they're all sort of pushing the same agenda. So that almost to me looks like a. That's fascinating. I didn't know like, like, about all those connections there. I oh yeah, saw like a, Deborah So just was on Joe Rogan, I think, again. She's been doing her circuit again. Uh, okay, recently. so Deborah. Deborah So. Deborah So was the doctoral student of James Cantor. Wow. Right? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and right now, Ken Zucker is doing some sort of um, study with uh, James Cantor related to uh, brain science. And what I believe that they're going to do yeah. and is that they're going to – what they're going to do is they're going to use these MRI studies, for instance, to suggest that people are born that way trans, right, mm -hmm. and get people to subscribe to this idea that you can be born that way trans and use science as a justification for when somebody is transgender or not, right? Yeah, they've been but trying what, to do that for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the thing is, is that once they get people to accept this, then they're going to say, oh, by the way, and that exact same science proves that people are born pedophiles, and so we need to be nice to them, and we need to add the P, and James Cantor has said this, we need to add the P to the LGBT. Wow, wow. That's an interesting connection that I, I wasn't even aware of, so I really appreciate that. Um, I think you just blew my mind a little bit. Uh, you, there are a lot of figures I find very strange. You've also got uh, Jonathan Kay, who seems to be a Zionist. Um, you know, in the debate, uh, Megan Murphy, who you've spoken about, um, you know, a little bit. So it's just very interesting to me, the people who get to sort of put their faces forward in a big, big way. And it's always kind of a letdown because, you know, no one's really talking about, you know, let's say like Lupron or, right. uh, you know, the, the danger of, of these guys being in women's prisons or, or that kind of topic, it all becomes just mindless sort of. Anyway, that's, that's, a, <laughs> Go that's ahead. a strategy. Yes. Let me just give, give you a footnote on that. So Jonathan Kay. Okay. So Jonathan Kay is an establishment boy. Okay. He's the mm -hmm. great defender of Conrad Black is sort of like the ultimate slime ball of the corporate world. Right. Wow. And sort of a media mogul. Um, so, but this is, a, this is a strategy. Okay. So if, whether you're talking about big pharma or whether you're talking about an establishment agenda, there's always going to be a contingency plan. Okay. So mm -hmm. people start sort of rebelling against the, you know, whatever it is you're pushing on them, you need a fallback strategy. And to me, that fallback strategy is people like Jonathan Kay and his, his mother, Barbara Kay and uh, Deborah So and, 
Ken Zucker and all these people. And what they offer is basically just a watered-down version of the same thing. But they need to very carefully control the narrative. And that is why um, people who sort of speak this sort of watered-down fallback narrative are the ones who get the voices, right? Mm. Whereas people like me are completely silenced. Yeah, I would, I would, that's very interesting. And I think you have invaluable uh, insight into this specifically because of what you've studied at university and where you are too. Canada seems to be a real hotbed for this kind of activity. Thank you so much, Jen Smith, for joining me uh, today. And I really appreciate you giving um, me your time. Okay, you're welcome. And thank you for, thanks for having me on the show.